0: Our reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, we're going to read the first 20 verses in this new chapter in our ongoing study of the Gospel of Mark. The message is titled before you, Bondage Breaker, Restored to Your Right Mind. We're looking into the work that Jesus has done, uh, the work that He does here in this passage, but the work that He's done in the lives and the hearts of all of us this day who are found in Him. Let's look together at this word, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They, that is Jesus and His disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to, see, and came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man into the pigs and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region and as he was getting into the boat the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him and he did not permit him but he said to him go home To your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. Your word, even as we see it here in this text, is powerful. It can accomplish anything for that which you send it. And so we would ask even now that you would be mindful of the hearts in this room and the way in which we need to hear and receive this word. We pray that it would come to us through this word From the bondage of sin that so easily entangles us. Whether for the very first time coming to know you in this hour. Or having known you, recognizing and realizing ways in which we have allowed sin to have a stronghold in our lives. Ways in which we have allowed the evil one to have a foothold in our lives. We would pray, Lord, that you right now would bed down any defenses... And that you would keep the evil one who might be, as the parable tells us, circling above like a bird now, seeking to eat up, gobble up the seed of the gospel as it is sown. Would you please bind him from our midst? And would you give us over to the work of the Holy Spirit? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, if you are with us at the end of Mark chapter 4, we saw Jesus exercise incredible power over the storm on the Sea of Galilee. With mere word, the sea went to glass and the winds were hushed. And a great calm fell over all of the disciples as they asked the question, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. Well, I'd like to suggest though, the situation is different. We essentially have, in a very real sense, the very same lesson before us in Mark chapter 5. No, the storm is not outside on the Sea of Galilee. The storm is inside. It's inside the heart of this Gerasene demoniac. And the great calm is not waves and wind, but the spoken word of Jesus who divests this man of evil power and draws him into relationship with Christ who grants to him internally the great calm of salvation. One who is sitting there and who is clothed and for once in a very long time is in his right mind. Yes, the circumstances are different. Jesus expressing power over nature in the first story. But it's Jesus here practicing power over supernature, over the spiritual world. Showing us that He is not just Lord of the things that you see and feel and taste and touch. But He is Lord over the unseen world. The holy war that's going on around and underneath, behind, hidden from us, but always present. The reality of the evil one and his minions. As we look at this text together, I want to consider it in four ways with you. I want to look first at the reality of spiritual evil, the reality of spiritual evil. I want to look secondly at the chains of spiritual bondage, the chains of spiritual bondage. I want to look thirdly at the power of the deliverer, the power of the deliverer. And fourthly, at the freedom of the deliverance, the freedom of the deliverance. And I want to start with a point that is implied, of course, in the text and not really spend much time textually specific on this point, but I think is a very important one for us to entertain for a moment as we enter into this text, and that is the reality of spiritual evil. I want to start there with you, because I believe that the idea that I'm going to spend the next 35 minutes or so, and I'm going to talk to you about the devil and demons, is odd to many modern ears. It seems unusual in our day and time. Are we really going to go back, as C.S. Lewis would put it at one point, to the, to, to the devil with the pitchfork and the red tights? Are we really going back to him and talking about his presence? And Lewis very clearly says, you know, I'm not a stickler on the pitchfork and the red tights, but in terms of the devil and the demons, yes, we're going to go back there because they're real many in our own modern day, philosophers, scientists and like, have argued that we're beyond such first century, ancient, imaginative explanations for phenomena that would take place. They, they didn't have a word for mental illness here. They didn't you can understand emotional uh, disorders they they didn't realize that multiple personality disorder is clearly what this man would have here in mark chapter 5 and he just needs good medicine he needs good therapy and counseling he needs a hospital he needs to be cared for by others and if they had had those categories present to them they wouldn't have imagined an explanation such as demon possession or the idea that there is a spiritual evil force that's at work in the world. I'd like to suggest, however, that such um, enlightened uh, 20th and 21st century conceptions or readings of uh, the Scriptures at this point are, uh, I would argue, both arrogant, first of all, and and then secondly, inaccurate. Arrogant because... um, There is, as again Lewis says, a kind of chronological snobbery that is a part of our time. Where we tend to think anyone who has come before us just wasn't as bright as our bulb. They just didn't see the things that we tend to see. And we've come so far that we understand things at a much deeper and more profound level than those other eras in history. It is a kind of of arrogance. It is a kind of hubris that is... Very, very characteristic of our time. And I think those who would look actually at the text of Scripture and have done genuine historic study would know that the ancients actually understood these distinctions quite well. We might even appeal to a verse like Matthew 4, verse 24, where Jesus is going about in Syria. and He is um, performing miracles and preaching and teaching. And then we see this, um, all these distinctions that are listed in the text regarding the things that he was, he was doing, the miracles He was performing. It says that He was healing the sick. Uh, Those afflicted with various diseases and those with pains. Those oppressed by demons. Those having seizures, paralytics, and others. Notice the distinctions. Um, They're they're pointing to issues related to the nerves. They're pointing to issues related to uh, to bone and and to to mental, mind-related issues like seizures um, they're pointing to a variety of different things not being all the same. And in the mix of those things is what? Demon possession. It's not as if they thought every time you sneezed, well, there was a demon behind it. They understood that there were multiple sourcings for the phenomena and the realities that we experience. In fact, I would, I would suggest that maybe we've um, unhelpfully reduced to simplistic categories the kinds of phenomena that we tend to experience. For instance, if we have uh, some strange thing happen to us, some mysterious thing going on in our bodies, for instance, we, we as moderns just assume that there has got to be uh, clearly out there somewhere a medical explanation for what's going on. And that is one possibility, it's not necessarily the only possibility. There are physical phenomena that often happen directly connected to uh, mental and emotional disorders. How many of you have been anxious and immediately had a stomach ache? How many of you have paid close attention to the text of Scripture and recognized that Nebuchadnezzar received from the Lord harassment from an evil spirit and lost his mind? There may be more going on than meets the eye. To simply say that we get sick and immediately assume that the only explanation is a physical malady is to reduce what could be possible sources. There could be psychological sources, there could be physical sources, but there could be spiritual sources. In fact, the Bible doesn't doesn't call us into treating people as merely the variety of aspects or compartments that we are... Um, made up of of mind and body and soul but instead to treat each other and understand each other as whole persons you see you've, I've never just merely engaged your mind because your mind is engaged with your body And your body and your mind are engaged with your soul. And there's no way to merely engage with your mind or merely engage with your body. This is one of the mistakes that our culture, modern culture, makes. One of the mistakes they make around sexuality, for instance. Well, it's just two bodies engaging in an activity. No, it's not just two bodies engaging in an activity. There's mental and soulish and spiritual realities at play in the design of the physical union between a husband and a a wife. There's a lot more going on there. There should be a healthy complexity to the way we understand the human person and the phenomena that we experience. We should be wise in recognizing the multi-dimensional realities of the human person. But we should know this. That underneath what's wrong with us, whether it's a common cold or it's cancer, whether it's a mental illness or an emotional disorder, at root, what the Scripture would give as the key to what's really going on is that we are fallen. So we are fallen. At root, the issue is spiritual. If you trace the origin all the way down to its root, you find yourself in Genesis chapter 3. You find yourself in a place where a physical action was taken and the spiritual reality was registered. The eating of a forbidden fruit. There we see it. And even in the earliest of sinful activities, connected to physical realities. This world is inflamed with the presence and the design of God. He has ordered it and structured it. And when we trespass, when we cross over a line, we don't merely do something wrong. We invite into us a power. Do you see, this is not just the reality of spiritual evil that's going on in this text. It's also showing us, secondly, the chains of spiritual bondage. Notice the characteristics of this spiritual bondage that's mentioned here. And then we'll talk a little bit about it specifically. It has lots of effects. Notice this this one who is captured by this legion of... Of demons, notice his home place, verse three. He lives among the tombs. He lives among the tombs. In other words, he is isolated and cut off from the land of the living. He finds himself in a graveyard. Graveyards always at this time outside the city gates, which is why Jesus is coming ashore. And there's a graveyard that's outside the city's a little ways in. And the first person to greet him is this. Demoniac, who is filled with demons and who recognizes and identifies Jesus. One who has been isolated and cut off from the living. Notice verse 5, how he's described. Night and day, at all times, it's a mirrorism in the scripture. At all times, among the tombs and on the mountains, he is crying out. He's a tortured soul. Mind running, emotion stirred, mentally plagued. He is literally tormented, would be the language to describe it. Notice fifth, notice in verse five also that it's gotten so bad that he's become self destructive in his behavior. He takes stones and cuts himself. I agree with most commentators here that this is at least, at the very least, a portrait of self loathing that has come now upon this man. He is now riddled, interact with shame and with guilt. He, he can't get free of that which has him and he loathes himself for what it is he's become and he takes that out on himself as controlled by these evil beings. Now, Mark doesn't mention it specifically. He only mentions it by implication at the end with the redemption and restoration of this man. It says that he was clothed and in his right mind. Now, if you actually read through Mark, you'll see that you were, ne- you were never told he was unclothed, interestingly. But Luke, if you look at Luke's account, you'll notice that Luke highlights the fact that for a long time, he wore no clothes. That this particular demoniac, lived, if we can put it this way, in open shame. It echoes, doesn't it, in many ways, the very opening sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and immediately their eyes were opened and they experienced the reality of shame. Notice that his degradation has come to such degree that he has now returned to living in open shame. He doesn't even register, as it were, the conscience At this particular point with regards to the state of his nakedness. When we're looking at this man, we're seeing a a kind of chain of bondage that has gone a long way down. How did he get here? (laughs) How How did he get here? What happened to this man? What's his story? Well, you can see that Mark doesn't entertain much of the backstory here. We happen upon him in the uh, the most shameful and worst moment in his in his life, but there are indications for how he got here, and I think these indications are really important because if you look at them, it actually gives us a clue to the spiritual bondage that often entangles us. N- Notice that he spends some time on the chains. In this text. Verses 4 and verses 5. We're told that he had often, this demoniac, been bound with shackles and chains. This often had happened. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. It's an echo of what he says even a little earlier in the the text. uh, When he said in verse 3, And no one could bind him anymore. Now, notice, though, the, the use of that word anymore for a second. What does the word in that context indicate or imply? There was a time where chains worked on this man. You know, they used to put him, in the, put him on the gurney with restraints, and, he'd, and they'd keep him there. And then all of a sudden, at some point, things got worse And by getting worse, he got stronger, meaning that more of the evil that had possessed him took over more of who he was. And his gradual but real slide into bondage continued to progress. Now, the reason I put gradual slide into the midst of his bondage is the text seems to be indicating and even spending a little time on the extent of this man's bondage is that he wasn't always this way. There was a path that was walked that got him to this point. What was the presenting moment? I don't know. How did it happen? I'm, not, I'm uncertain. Was this man dabbling in witchcraft and, and sorcery? Or had this man, which can be the case, had so given in to habitual sin for such a long period of time? And and had he gone to greater extents of of depravity within certain areas of, of sin, where his conscience became increasingly seared and his openness to the things of darkness became continually opened until the point. Where he was invaded and broken in by the evil one. I don't know the story. But I do know that John connects those dots in 1 John 3. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John says, If anyone makes the practice of sinning, he or she is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, now, why do I note that specifically? Well, well, I want you to know there's a number of pathways that we could go in this particular text. You could say to yourself, Well, oh, I'm not dabbling in witchcraft. I, I'm not, I'm not a, a Wiccan server. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not... I don't have crystal balls. I don't have tarot cards. I'm not even reading my horoscope in the, in the newspaper every day. And a lot, a lot of people would do that. So, so I'm not anywhere close to these wicked things. I have no concerns of being able to fall into this kind of pattern. And I think John would say, are you sure? Do you see, we sometimes misunderstand the nature of what sin really is and what spiritual bondage really looks like. Do you see, when you sin and when I sin, we don't merely do something wrong. Oh, shoot, we should have done better than that. We actually say yes to the power of darkness. Let me tell you how it works. Think of that thing that you never thought you'd do. You cheated, you stole. You stole. You looked at that thing on the internet. Now you remember doing it. Remember maybe the first time? Remember the guilt? You remember the isolation? You remember the markers that begin to show up of bondage? Now do you remember the second time? How it was easier than the first? And the third? How it was easier than the second? And how like as you make your way in and out of the woods, down a trail, even where there is no trail, if you walk it often enough, it's a very easy path. Gradual. Spiritual bondage comes one decision at a time. Down a certain direction, inviting as a practice of sinning the reality of spiritual evil. Now you, and I pray not in this room, dealing with spiritual oppression. But all of us know the isolation that comes from sin, don't we? What it means to be cut off from relationship. Do you know what it's like to loathe yourself? Maybe some of us in this room have even been tempted in self-destructive behaviors. Whether taking stones and cutting ourselves. Or whether drinking ourselves into oblivion. Or giving ourselves over to the things of the flesh to the degree that we just try to escape so that we can forget it all. But all we have done is actually given more to the power. You see, the demoniac may not be quite so far away from any one of us. And the sobering reality of Mark chapter 5 is calling us to do some examination, isn't it? How tight have certain sins and habits got a hold of us? And maybe not just the most egregious ones. Maybe, maybe the ones that we like, the, the technicolor ones, right? Uh, maybe, maybe the ones where we just go, well, you know, she just really likes news on people. Oh, you mean she's normalized gossip? Notice the places in your life where you used to have a firmer conscience than you do now. Over something the Bible's not unclear about. It's not that the Bible's unclear. It's just that your conscience has increasingly been seared. Those are the places that God is calling us to examine. Those are the places He's calling us to pay attention to. And almost all of us have some work here. When we begin to realize that the presence of spiritual evil... And the power of oppression from the outside can be present among believer or unbeliever. Now, possession's a different matter. That's obviously the focus here of the text. Um, there's, there's no way for a demon-possessed uh, Christian uh, to, to, to live, to exist. We've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. But spiritual oppression was common among believers throughout all of centuries. Why would, it, why would it be that so often in the Scripture we're told to resist the evil one and he will flee from you, to beware, to be on guard against the spirits, to test the spirits, to see if they be from the Lord? Why would this instruction be given to believers if this was not a reality, that we can be under genuine spiritual attack from unclean and demonic spirits? We need to be alerted to this. I think far too often we, we have a tendency to explain it away or rely upon a certain conception of it and, and thus we wind up doing battle in the flesh rather than by the Spirit. And, and our fights against it actually are, are unprepared because we don't have the, the armor of God. We don't have the weaponry that He's called us to for the battle, the holy war in which we're engaged. The reality of spiritual evil is present in this text, but also a glimpse into the bondage of spiritual evil, where it it ultimately takes us. Now, if you begin to see at the bottom of all of this is the reality of fallenness, sin is at the bottom of all of this. What it means is we need somebody outside of us to come and give us help. I don't know if you've, you've tried to get rid of sin in your life. Have you tried? Have you found it hard? It's excruciating. It's like you, you kill one and two come back. It's like the weeds in my flower beds during the spring. It's, and, and part of what's happening is when you do battle against the flesh and when you do battle against sin, um, you, you, genuine victory and success can be won. But, you know, part of what growing in the faith means means you see more than you've ever seen before. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, you killed something. But here, let me show you a few others that you hadn't even paid any attention to yet. That's part of what even growth looks like in the Christian life. But you begin to realize that it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, isn't it? You know? All of the time. And you realize, like, I'm not going to win this on my own. I'm going to need a power outside of me. I'm going to need a deliverer. I've got to have somebody come in and free me. And that's what this text drives us towards because it wants us to know that sin is this addictive controlling power and it proliferates through every part of our being. We need somebody to come in from the outside and deliver us. And that's where this text wants to take us, to the power of the deliverer. Now notice when Jesus shows up on the shores, isn't this remarkable? The demons know exactly who he is. They always know exactly who it is. The disciples, they're like, who is this man? We have no no idea what's going on here. But the demons, they're totally clear. It's it's as if in story at the end of chapter 4, they go, we don't know who this guy is. And the demons are going, let me tell you. I'll give you the skinny, the cliff note version on who he is. He is the son of the Most High God. Now, if you look throughout the Gospel of Mark, we saw this already back in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus originally faced the first story of demon possession The question was raised there in Capernaum. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's important to know that the demons, we're told in James chapter 2, know who God is and in fact have good theology. They believe in God, we're told, and they shudder. That's better than many moderns. The demons are aware of this. Now, they're not trusting in God. They're not submitting to God. They're not following Him but they recognize him. They acknowledge him. And in fact, they, they can see that he has power far beyond their power. I find it ironic here in the text when they, they, they speak to him. And they, they, say, they say to him, you know, don't send us into the hillside. Send us instead to the pigs. Uh, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And you think to yourself, well now what have you been doing? Oh, oh, that's right. You've been tormenting someone. Now, someone's come to town who can torment you. A power greater than the one that, that has been tormenting. They recognize that they have more than met their match. Now, what I, I actually really love about this text, I was I appreciated one commentator specifically on, on this, where he, he noted that it's almost as if Mark has put us in a, in a, in a showdown in, in this text. You know, here is... The first Gentile man on Gentile soil <laughs> that Jesus meets as he comes across to the Sea of Galilee. And he meets him um, with a legion of demons with inside of them. And they're in the tombs with a herd of pigs all around. I mean, could it get more unclean? Could, could we get a more picture of kind of where Jesus is here, you know? I mean, here is Gentile territory, Gentile man, full of demons, uh, pigs surrounding him, coming from unclean tombs, and Jesus shows up, and what we find in the text is there's not any of that home turf advantage that the evil one has the moment that Jesus shows up. Now this legion of demons that's inside this man, if we just go by the calculations of the Roman battalion, which was the language being used here, it could be upwards to 5,000 soldiers. I don't know if what's indicated by that is that specificity. Is the demon going, there's exactly 5,000 of us here inside this man. I doubt that that's the case. I think it's meant to say there's a whole many of us here. Our name is Legion. We are collectively operating under the master of the one who has opened himself up to us. We are now serving the evil one through this host. We are legion. And what's interesting about that, that those demons is what we see is when, when they are cast out of the man, and they go into the pigs. We're told 2,000 pigs. I mean, this is a lot of pigs. 2,000 pigs run over the cliff into the water and, and drown. Now, does that mean you know, one demon per pig? I have no idea how this works. I am above my pay grade to answer those questions. But let's put it this way. There's a lot of evil force here. And when the heat, Jesus shows up, these demons are shaking in their boots. The kingdom of darkness is at one level. It looks from a human standpoint throwing its worst at Jesus as soon as he hits the shore at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, you know, isn't this interesting? He doesn't say, okay, disciples, I'm going to need you. All right, let's, let's... Anybody got the wand? Anybody got the wand over here? Got an incantation? We're going to... No. With a few words, they obey Him. Isn't that remarkable? Now listen, their master, humanly speaking, in terms of the scale of the earth, the prince and the power of the air, the evil one, is the one who they do bidding. And when Jesus shows up, It's as if they all become Benedict Arnolds on the spot because they have met a power much greater than their master, the one that they've been serving. And with one word, he grants them notice permission to enter the pigs. I have not really addressed the pig question in the other sermons. Commentators love to talk about the pigs. People are very worried about pigs. Let me tell you this. I'm just going to tell you people are worried about pigs. They, why, did, why did Jesus grant permission? Why, why, why did Jesus orchestrate the slaughter of 2,000 pigs? This is not humanitarian Jesus that we would like to have in the, in the 21st century. Well, I just, I, okay, a little dose of reality here. Those pigs were not being raised for pets. Okay? All right? That's, that's bacon, all right, and ham that's going on there. All right? But, it, but I will say one, one commentator said this. And I, I think it just really sums it up very helpfully to me. He said, it's as if, though, Jesus is saying that the freeing of one soul of man is worth the 2,000 pigs destroyed if the kingdom of God would come in that way. that from before the foundation of the world he had set his love upon this garrison demoniac and the gates of hell would not prevail against. With a mere word he granted them permission. And though this world with devils feel. Should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One little word. This is the power of our deliverer. Now the question I want to, want to raise to you though at this point is are you struggling with a bondage right now? Is there, is there something you can identify in your own heart and life that you're, you have too close an attachment to? Something of the world. It might be a good thing that you're abusing. It might be an illicit thing. That's just wrong through and through. I don't know. Is there an area of your life where bondage is at play? Where you know right now inside with human resources alone. It appears as if you would not be able to say no. Let me ask you. Do you believe Jesus can free you? Do you believe he can? Because he can and it is his desire to do so have you gone to him genuinely gone to him have you brought that out into the light have you confessed it to the lord have you brought maybe even his people the church involved in that so for accountability and for help have you walked out do you believe that god by the power of his spirit can free you from the bondage that is there and you go nay, i don't you don't know how long this has been going on i don't care how long It's not about the length, it's not about the strength of that thing. We clearly see in the text, there is no strength or power in the world that's any match for Jesus. Cast your care upon Him. He cares for you. Come to us, we will go together. He will free us. It is His vision, it is His plan, it is His hope. It is His certain end for those in whom He is called as His children. That which He has begun, He will draw to completion. And no one will see the Lord without holiness. You will be afraid. Consider the freedom of Jesus. Now, I want you to also, I want you to also ask the question, is there someone you've given up on whether they can change? Who's the demoniac in your sphere? Right, That person can never change. Can you imagine OK, can, all right, here, here it is. Jesus is starting his Gentile breaking in of the kingdom of God. Who does he choose as his first conversion? A demoniac, of course. <laughs> Let me guess, you wouldn't have chose him. It's OK, me neither. But he did. He did. It's very noteworthy that he did. Who is it that we need to be sharing about our story? Notice how he challenges here this demoniac. This demoniac, he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus at the beginning of this passage, and he begs to go with Jesus by the. Three times the word beg is used in here. And it's used of the demons begging him to not torment them. Begging him to send them into the pigs. And then at the end, it's the demoniac who is now clothed and in his right mind. Who is begging to stay with Jesus. It's the words actually of discipleship. He wants to be one of Jesus' disciples. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is? No. He has a plan, and it doesn't include him among the 12 apostles. That that ship has sailed. He's got another mission that he's on. But what does he say to him? He says, instead, what I want you to be is my lead evangelist in the Decapolis. I want you to go and share with all your friends about the mercy that God has shown to you. That's what I want you to be. I want you to be my lead evangelist. And he says, I want you to tell. Isn't this interesting? Listen, there's a lot of different ways to talk about sharing the gospel. But I want to just note how Jesus encourages this man to share the gospel today for your purposes. He says, tell them your story of how I showed you mercy. Now, let me tell you, you may not be able to answer every objection of the modern and postmodern um, debates and apologetics in our day and time to defend the faith, but I bet you can tell a story of mercy. And you go, well, Nate, that may not answer every question. Let's trust the Spirit to do his work. You tell your story about how God has shown you mercy. Well, Nate, my story's not as great as the demoniacs. Your story is a miracle. And any work of God bringing the dead to life deserves to be shared among people who need to be brought from death to life. That's what he's saying here. He says, I want you to know, I've called you to something. I've got a mission for you. I think as you look at this passage and you see the richness of what it is that God is calling us to, what He's showing us that is grace can powerfully do and challenge us to go and spread this gospel, you may be asking, how can I actually deal with this? Well, the demons of my own life right now. The ones that continue to cling to me. You know, you may not have isolation or a, a, a demon, but you've experienced isolation and shame and guilt from sin. You know what it's like to have self-destructive tendencies, to dabble in the in the things of darkness, things that are not from the Lord. We we all know that. How are we gonna face those things? Grow through them, overcome them. I'd like to suggest that the larger story of the Gospel of Mark helps us. Do you see where Jesus is gonna go? is ultimately to enter the skin and the reality of the demoniac when He takes on all of the forces of darkness on the cross. And He experiences, by receiving our sin charged to His account, the isolation that we have known when His Father turned His back on Him. And he knew the separation that sin caused in communion with God. And he experienced the shame of hanging there naked, exposed before a watching crowd. He knew the experience. Of the destruction that sin has, the blood that was shed, his body torn, as a visible expression of the reality of our sin being charged to his account, he would become one who would live among the tombs, who would be numbered among the dead. Do you see, whatever sins that this demoniac had, and no matter what forces of darkness were dwelling within him, Jesus was going to both pay for those sins and crush the head of that serpent. And in the day where he broke forth from the grave in resurrection, he laid low our greatest enemy, sin and death. Which was what the evil one held in his hands, the prince of the power of the air and of darkness. And no longer has that been taken over our heads. The grave has been robbed, Jesus has robbed it. And the evil one doesn't have that power. So let not sin reign in your mortal body anymore. Listen not to the lies. That you can't overcome this. You can't get better. There's no chance for you. Jesus didn't die to stop short of defeating the sin in your life. He wasn't raised from the dead to go halfway. He will reveal holiness in you. And that power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Right now, the Holy Spirit. And he's calling us into the truth of the resurrection power of Christ. To overcome the evil one. To resist Him. And to know that He will flee from us. Listen, when you begin to share, I believe, your story in this. and God's own work. You'll begin to see... As you bring those things out into the light that the Lord loves to reward the openness of the story of grace and redemption that He has woven in our lives. He loves to reward it with the flood of His grace. To grow us from one degree of glory to the next. Listen friends, I do believe as we live in a day and time that increasingly is calling evil good and good evil. And normalizing Sin, which is an invitation to spiritual evil. We should pay close attention to these passages and we should begin to share our story of mercy because we're not here because we somehow made the grade, we're here because of God's mercy. We're here because of God's mercy. And there are others all around you and all around me who need His mercy. And your story might be the way in which they learn of His mercy. Let's start sharing our stories. We may not be with Jesus as one of His apostles, but He has commissioned us to evangelism, to share the story of what it is He's done and to watch Him Redeem His people. Father in heaven, we ask that You would dethrone sin in our lives and any spiritual power even right now. You would bring down footholds and strongholds, that You would use the stories of mercy that is the stories of Your people by which to expand the kingdom so that others who are ensnared by the evil of this life and of the flesh and of the devil would come to you in a saving relationship and would then begin become followers of you, growing in grace. Father, there is no eloquence that can make that happen. There is no uh, proficiency of talent or skill. Um, that would be to believe that this is of the world. But there is this thing called faithfulness to your call. And you love to use the weakness of preaching, even its foolishness, as a means by which to show your strength. Would you use us foolish ambassadors for the purposes of making your name known, for the spread of your kingdom, for the redeeming of your people? Hear that prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen.